Welcome to What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East edition. This podcast is a production of Primary Source, a nonprofit that provides PD for K-12 teachers in global learning. Learn more about Primary Source by visiting www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. This episode was made possible through generous support from Qatar Foundation International, another nonprofit that inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators. Learn more about QFI at www.qfi.org. The Arab world is in many ways a region in flux, at least socially and economically. In many Arab countries, state-run economies are giving way to privatization, which is expanding the number and kinds of jobs available, as well as the kinds of educational opportunities available to help prepare young people for those new jobs. Social media, too, is connecting Arabs with others throughout the Middle East and the world, facilitating regional and global conversations about life and politics and culture. As exciting as these transformations may sound, though, They can also be the source of enormous stress for the rising generation of young Arab women and men who have to navigate these unfamiliar social and economic landscapes. Oftentimes, Arab youth respond to these challenges by making individual choices that will benefit them the most, such as which school they should attend. But as we've seen over the last decade, sometimes Arab youth have responded collectively, working together to protest injustices or to fight for political reform. Well, in this episode, we use the pressures on young people and some of their responses to those pressures as lenses through which to explore some of the social and economic changes taking place within the Arab world today. We also offer some ideas on how you can teach your own students about young people and young activists in the Middle East. This is Episode 8, Arab Youth and Youth Activism. Young people are struggling not just with the oppressive authoritarian government and the authoritarian measures taken after the Arab Spring, but also a changed career path where many of them in the past would have moved into a government job. Those are fewer and further between. They now have to have the linguistic skills as well as the professional skills to get jobs in a very new market. Meet Betty Anderson professor of history at Boston University who specializes in the history of education in the Middle East. As an expert on schools and students in the region, she's well poised to analyze the ways that young people have helped bring about change in the Arab world, both in the past and in the present. But before we dive in, we need a solid handle on two key elements, the first being demographics in the region. Right now, in each of the Arab countries, most of the people are under the age of 30. So we're looking at 55, 60, 65% or so are under the age of 30. I give these different numbers because the numbers are collected differently. Who is youth? Is it 30? Is it 35? Is it 25? So I'm generalizing. But the majority of people in each of these countries are youth. And we also know that the largest group that is unemployed right now are the 20-somethings. Next thing you need to know is how higher education works in most of the Arab world, because it's different than how higher ed works here in the U.S. Education in the Arab world has traditionally been more of the professional vocational kind, that 
you take a leaving exam out of high school and that determines the major and the university you could go to. That's when the state universities predominated. So if you got the best score on the leaving exam, you could go to medical school. But you started that at 18, which is the European system as well, as opposed to our system where we say, yeah, come in and get a general education, learn how to think, learn how to view the world, and then specialize in graduate school. And so that's why you get such a large number of engineers and doctors because these fields have been prized more than others. And we have enormous numbers of women going to university. I think most of the universities in the world have more women in them than men. And they're mostly in the STEM fields because that has been the tradition. The issue then becomes where to get the job and men still predominate in those jobs after graduation. So these are many pressures on this large youth bulge. You can see how this kind of system can create some problems. You have lots of kids going to universities and training in STEM and other high demand fields, but not enough jobs, especially for women. And there are other challenges too. Youth are struggling with many, many issues that are really pretty new to the Arab world with what kinds of schools should they go to. There are now so many more private schools. You know, there have always been American education and European education and those options, which are very expensive. Now we have a lot of schools opening that might be $100 a year, $500 a year, $2,000 a year or King Abdullah's King's Academy, which is something like $30,000 a year. There's a range of options, and it's a range of options given the fact that the state school systems have deteriorated markedly in really the last 20 years with privatization, with austerity measures, with IMF restructuring. State schools are struggling to maintain quality. And maintain, I would say, even change their curriculum to go along with the current globalized economy. So going to a state school, a student wouldn't get access to immersion in English, for example, but some of the private schools get that. They could then go on to the American University in Cairo or the American University of Beirut or schools in England. I'm meeting young people in a project I'm doing right now who have been able to go for a year to Syracuse University. There are a lot of these kinds of programs, but you need to have good, strong English education prior to that. That's not just English as a second language, but more English immersion. But English immersion means that a lot of these young people are not learning Arabic in the same way. And it doesn't mean actually that Arabic is taught all that well at the state schools either because of the deterioration of the quality. So. Students and young people are struggling with what kind of education will actually get me the kind of job that I want in the new economic atmosphere. When they graduate from, say, Jordan University or Cairo University or the American University in Cairo, there are now more private sector jobs. So in Jordan, for example, uh, one statistics I saw said that, you know, I think it was the 1980s or 1990s, about 10% of jobs were in the private sector. And as of a couple of years ago, it was about 35, 38%. Sounds great, right? More private sector jobs should lead to more opportunities for young people. But that hasn't really been happening. These are far more temporary jobs. New employees often have to have a probation period that they don't get paid for three or six months. Maybe they don't get 
full employment after that. A lot of them are on contracts, so they might have a year-long contract for a particular project. Then they have to go find another job. So there's a lot more moving around, and prices have gone up. So just moving around each of these cities, being able to buy the professional clothes to go for the interview, all of these things cost money. And also there's a new, really expanded uh, cafe culture, going out culture that is not entirely new, but it's so expanded that to see your friends, you go out to cafes. And again, some interviews I've been doing in Amman, many of the participants talk about the fact that they would love to see friends at home for an evening, but now the culture is about going out, which means you have to come up with 10 or $20 for each of those. So I'd say there are a lot of pressures on youth. In other words, young people are at the crux of all these changes. On paper, at least, they have more choice and more opportunities than their parents ever did. But post-graduation job prospects for many aren't that great. Inflation and unemployment are both high, and shifting social expectations can add additional pressures. You can see why frustration among young people can be so widespread, and why frustration can lead to the kinds of demonstrations and uprisings like we saw across the Arab world in 2011. That's a pretty oversimplified explanation of the Arab Springs, and we'll do a better job of parsing out causes in a little bit. First, though, let's pause a moment and think big picture context. Professor Anderson is a historian after all, and she notes that student protest isn't exactly a new phenomenon in the Arab world. It's important to keep this in mind not only to better understand how previous generations of youth in the region have dealt with social, political, and economic change, but also so that we can better understand the important role that youth activism can play in the Arab world. Really, the activity began in the 19th century. And what scholars will usually point to is a protest by students at the Syrian Protestant College, which was founded by American missionaries in Beirut in 1866. And the first protest took place in 1882 when a professor gave a speech at graduation where he praised Darwin. And the more conservative professors on campus were completely up in arms because this went against their religious beliefs. And the students in the medical college at the time went out in protest and were angry that they weren't getting the kind of education that they had been promised. They had been promised the most modern of educations. And here is this issue of Darwin that couldn't be taught on campus. But also the professors that they liked the best, the chemistry and medical faculty they liked the best, all left campus because of this controversy. So in the end, this protest led to no changes that the students wanted. The conservative professors said that if you wanted to come back to campus next year, you had to follow all the rules. New professors who came had to sign a declaration of principles saying that they would never teach anything that went against Christian evangelical principles. But it really points to the fact that students have been at the forefront of protest in certainly the Arab world since more or less the last quarter of the 19th century because they were part of new institutions institutions, these new schools, whether they were the missionary schools or the new Ottoman state schools. So these students were part of a new series of generations going to school where their parents had not or then their grandparents had not. And students were protesting repeatedly. Students then have been at the vanguard of social protest in the Arab world for a really long time. And while students weren't very successful in implementing significant curricular changes in the mid-19th century, they'd have a lot more success a generation or two later. 
The 1930s was a time of mass protests out in the streets, and students were a key component of that, as well as graduates of the new schools who were now government officials, they were teachers, they were doctors, and they were out protesting against colonialism. They were protesting against the fact that Syria and Jordan were artificial states. Arab nationalism meant that we needed to bring down the borders and create a large Arab state that could stand up to colonialism. They didn't like the glass ceiling, that older notables had the key positions inside of these mandate governments. They felt that they were better educated in a more modern fashion. So they had demonstrations, they formed political salons, they wrote thousands of articles in newspapers in the 1930s and 1940s outlying the government systems that they preferred as well as histories of the Arabs, cultural analyses of poetry. And so what they were doing is they were rethinking who we were supposed to be in this new modern world, this new world where we've now been forced into new states. Then the 1950s and 1960s, the same questions were really coming to the fore. Jordan, Syria, Egypt, the countries are all independent at this point, but students were angry that they weren't getting the right to vote or not the right to vote in free elections. They were still looking to Arab nationalist answers. So we see particularly in the mid 1950s, protests across the Arab world organized by the new Ba'ath Party, you know, the Arab Unity Party, uh, but also the communist parties throughout the Arab world were interested in Arab unity and bringing down the borders. And the idea is if we could bring down the borders of say Jordan and Syria and united to a large Arab state, we would again, like they said in the 1930s, be stronger, be able to stand up to say the United States in the Cold War, being able to stand up to Israel, being able to organize economies better, and also look to a more transparent and participatory government system they were also asking for. So students and youth were very much a part of this because high school students were protesting. Many of them, even in the 1950s and 60s, were often the first member of their family to go all the way through high school. And so they're still a very unique population. Now, for those of you who teach 20th century world and U.S. history, this is where the story starts to sound pretty familiar. Young people unhappy with Cold War era politics. Young people pushing for change at home and abroad. Students in particular protesting on campuses. This in some ways culminated in the late 1960s with the student movement all over the world. And I call this very clearly a student movement. And when I say a student movement, what I mean is that the people protesting were doing so as students. They wanted their campuses to be civic spaces, just like Town Square and any other city or town they might be from. They saw themselves as four-year citizens or eight-year citizens, depending on how long they were staying on campus, and wanted to be able to essentially vote and have a say, and in that case it would be curriculum or faculty decisions. And they pushed against the uh, administrations and all of their universities to try and get that. And one of the responses was to create free universities. So what they would do is they would make sure that topics that weren't covered, like oil or Vietnam, or one of these issues wasn't covered on campus, they would have a professor informally teach this topic, or they themselves would get together and teach each other about these particular topics. So that's why we see 1968 and 69, students rising up very specifically as students. To sum up, 
students were especially upset about what was going on in the mid to late 1960s, particularly with regard to what they were learning in their classrooms, or sometimes not learning in their classrooms. And then the backlash of the 1970s happened in the Arab world and a lot of other places too. What we see in the 1970s is more or less a backlash against so much of that, those politics. Across the world, administrations uh, get better control over their campuses again. Students are not given the, the freedom to be able to protest. Politics moved further to the right in the late 1970s with economic recession. People's fears over these student protests and say in the United States, the anti-Vietnam protests. Uh, in the case of the Arab world, I studied the American University of Beirut and probably the largest protests of the students were there and in Cairo. So these two places had the largest student protests. In the case of the American University of Beirut, by 1975, there's a civil war. And so students, student protests didn't work that way. They could become youth activists fighting on behalf of their particular political parties, but not as students as a collective. And it doesn't mean that student protests all ended. They certainly existed in the late 70s and 80s on campus, but to nowhere near the extent. And there are a lot more divisions within the student population. Now, when we think of student activists in the 1960s, we think of kids who are pretty liberal, right? The stereotype is of free-loving hippies who want peace, not war, and wear a lot of tie-dye. It's important to remember, though, that at least in the Arab world, conservative student organizations were on the rise at this time, too. In fact, one of these groups you've no doubt heard of, the Muslim Brotherhood. The story of their rise in success in winning over Egyptian students from the mid to late 20th century is tied in with many of the political, social, and economic transformations that were taking place within Egypt during this time. The Muslim Brotherhood was founded in Egypt in 1928 in a village outside of Cairo, and by the early 1930s, the Hassan al-Banna, the founder, had moved into Cairo. And just as students were protesting in the 1930s in places like Egypt against their governments, against con continuing colonial control, against the fact that old elites were in charge and young people wanted to have more say in the government, the vast majority of those young people were in leftist organizations, Arab nationalist, communist, and socialist kinds of organizations. But the Muslim Brotherhood from that moment was also involved. They had student organizations in the streets. They were providing services to students who were interested in continuing their religious education, wanting to frame their activism within Islam. All of these organizations had their own local student street militias. Sometimes they were fighting in the streets of Cairo in 1936 and 37. Once Kamal Abdel Nasser came into office in 1952, he repressed the Muslim Brotherhood and forced many into exile. Many went off to Saudi Arabia and to the Gulf for jobs as teachers and other government officials. Others he arrested. When he died in September 1970, Anwar Sadat, who had been the vice president, then becomes the president. But it isn't an immediate decision that he was going to be the president for the long term. He had to gain supporters. And in the midst of the massive student and worker protests of 68, 69, 70, against the failure of the Egyptian government. Anwar Sadat used these protests in some ways to gain a following, gain his own supporters. And so he allowed Muslim Brotherhood figures to come back. He 
and more or less clandestinely supported uh, Islamic student groups at universities and heavily repressed the leftist student and worker movement. Arrested a lot of them, put police on the ground during their protests, and with clandestine support for these Islamic groups at universities, they were able to have a space to grow. So the Muslim Brotherhood was still illegal, but there was room to maneuver by them, which the left didn't have. And so the student groups on campus provided uh, a space for people to come and read about the Quran, read about Islam, debate Islamic tenets, determine what how to dress and present themselves in public, let's say a beard or the hijab or the niqab. And this became a, an empowerment movement in the 70s and 80s among young people who were looking for answers amidst this failure of the 1967 war, amidst this failure of Nasserite Arab socialist policies, uh, amidst the privatization efforts that Anwar Sadat was initiating in the mid-1970s. People were now struggling to get jobs. Um, one figure I saw uh, said that the Egypt needed about 2,000 engineers every year, so 2,000 new engineers, and they were graduating about 5,000 engineers. So Anwar Sadat actually opened more universities in the 70s and 80s, but with fewer jobs available at the end of that. And the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamic organizations on campus and then in the professional organizations provided community, provided a, um, aid to people who needed to buy books or needed to get resources to go to school and provided empowerment and you know a way to think about who to be amidst so much of this repression and the failure of the 1967 war. Despite its growing prominence in Egypt throughout the 20th century, the Muslim Brotherhood remained relatively unknown among most Westerners until this century, when thousands of Egyptians took to the streets of Cairo in 2011. It was one of the many protests across the Arab world that we often refer to collectively as the Arab Spring, protests that took almost everyone by surprise. As scholars have looked back, it shouldn't have been that big a surprise because we really saw 10 years of organizing prior to the Arab uprisings, particularly by workers. And a lot of the workers in places like Egypt, not in the old factories, like an old steel or car factory, whatever, the big industries that Egypt had nationalized. But in a lot of ways, it was the new factories that are connected to globalization, the tax-free status that the United States offered to countries like Egypt and Jordan to produce goods uh, in these kind of Macchiadora zones that then could be sold, the products could be sold tax-free into the United States. So in a lot of ways, the organizing was in these kinds of new factories, much less so than the old factories. And all the way from the Nasserite years, labor unions were always controlled by the state. What these protesters were doing, these workers were doing, is they were breaking away from state unions and going on strike just independently. And there, I think there were something like a thousand strikes in the 10 years before Tahrir Square and the Arab Spring, something like that. And that meant that's a lot of people who have been organized. 
Christ. So then we also get the Kafaya movement, which was a political party founded in the very beginning of the 21st century. Kafaya means enough, that we want to go out and protest against the government. And the initial catalysts were to go out and protest because the Second Intifada had broken out between the Palestinians and the Israelis, and Egyptians didn't feel that the Egyptian government was giving enough support to the Palestinian movement. And then, of course, anger against Israel, anger against the United States, protesting on behalf and in support of the Palestinians. But once the organization starts to form, they then turn to demand new political rights from the Egyptian government, not getting a response, but again, organizing. So this is where you would get people who were university graduates, university students, probably high school students, who were part of things like the Kavaya movement. We also have splits in the Muslim Brotherhood in the 10 years before that a new generation, a younger generation, wanting to see the Muslim Brotherhood become more activist, that the Muslim Brotherhood had become status quo, it had become by that point involved in a lot of businesses, it had connections informally with the state. There was a new generation saying, we need to challenge our older leadership to be more activist, to answer questions that we as youth have. And that's another group that was organized. So this was the precursor, but in a lot of ways, scholars weren't seeing necessarily how A to B to C added up. But once things started to happen in 2010 and 2011, people could then look back and say, oh, but you know what? 10 years ago, this started. While youth clearly weren't the only protesters in the uprising in Egypt, they did play some pretty significant roles. Yeah, they were very much a part of the producing the Facebook pages, of organizing the protests. Uh, there's a great story of how one of the very first protests in Tahrir Square took place. So I think it might have been in the second or third. So the first one had taken place not quite spontaneously, but at least a lot more people had joined that people that nobody had expected to join, it got larger. So a couple of protests down the line, the state knew perfectly well there was gonna be a protest on a Friday. And uh, the organizers brilliantly set up text messages. So would send one group down one street, one group down another street, so at least part of the group could end up at Tahrir Square and throw off the police. That would be young, young people. So you're looking at anyone from their teens into their 20s and early 30s organizing that. And yet, Professor Anderson reminds us that we can't just lump all young people together or think of them as all having the same concerns or agenda. For one, not all young people are students. And that's actually one of the distinguishing elements that sets the Arab Spring apart from previous protests, at least in Egypt. In the Arab Spring, we see youth involvement, but not necessarily student involvement because students were not coming out from their campuses having... Organized on campus to protest against curriculum changes or not having any power. Some of that was taking place, but not really at the national level that we see. So, what we see in the Arab Spring in Tahrir Square in Cairo, for example, is really youth involvement in those protests. Furthermore, not all young people who participated in the 2011 Arab uprisings wanted the same outcomes. Some students got what they wanted out of the uprisings, and others, well, didn't at all. We can't necessarily come up with a generalization of what their opinion would be. There are a lot of different reactions that could take place. We would look at country, class, societal position. When you think of just Egypt, with first the Muslim Brotherhood Party winning the most votes and the presidency, then a military coup after that, youth would not have one answer to that. 
some would have supported the Muslim Brotherhood, some vociferously opposed the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, supported General Sisi coming in in the military coup in 2013. Many of them might be disillusioned now with Sisi. So I think we can't necessarily come up with a generalization. The Arab Spring played out differently in different countries across the Arab world. But most governments there took steps after the fact to prevent those kinds of protests from taking place again. So where does that leave young people today? How do those who are unhappy with the status quo voice their discontent? I think students can make a statement of discontent in the same way students have always done that. They dye their hair, they wear t-shirts that have some kind of statement on it, they listen to music their parents don't like. Heavy metal music is very popular in the Arab world. Hip-hop, very popular. This would go against the grain of their parents. These are typical generational protests wanting to break out from the rules of their family and go out to the cafes to join student organizations on campus, which do exist. There are student protest organizations on University of Jordan campus right now, for example. But there are limitations to the kind of political protest, you know, standing up to the school, standing up to the authoritarian state. That is very, very difficult to do right now. But students can find, as they always have, lots of ways to register their discontent. Young people are also tackling domestic social issues, which actually highlight some of the gender dimensions of Arab activism that can easily get overlooked. Youth activism in the Middle East has had a gendered element to it that men have more uncontested right to go out into public spaces to protest. Uh, women's families, uh, fear of the attacks that could take place, which did take place in Tahrir Square against women, have kept women as a smaller group within at least the public presence of youth activism. But women have also been very heavily involved in trying to bring down honor crimes laws to make it easier for perpetrators of honor crimes to go to jail, to be prosecuted for what they have done, because there are honor crimes laws that say that if it was an act of passion, the man was in fear of the family honor being besmirched, that he will not be prosecuted in the same way as a murder. And so Jordan has been successful in changing some of these laws. Lebanon is working in that direction. Tunisia has done that of trying to frame these as murders, not as something that is defensible as an honor crime. And women have been very involved in that. Women have been very involved in enormous numbers in all the NGOs, both the local state NGOs as well as the state-affiliated NGOs as well as the international NGOs. So they're very much involved in uh, women's rights issues, children's rights issues, getting welfare to Syrian refugees. Palestinian refugees, Iraqi refugees. So women have been very involved in the political realm in that way. Okay, so how do you teach about Arab youth and youth activism in your own classroom? Well, Primary Source has some ideas to help you there, too. And for those, we turn to Senior Program Director, Deborah Cunningham. 
Aside from reading the sorts of articles about youth activism that Primary Source has listed in the free online resource links of our podcast webpage, one strategy for developing a deeper understanding of the pressures facing young people and how they respond or resist is to use literature in the classroom. Both fiction and nonfiction works can build students' empathy about the difficulties of life under authoritarian rule or in confronting day-to-day prejudice against women and girls. Many works of literature also offer readers authentic access to regional voices speaking out about what matters to them, which often differs from what's reported in the Western media. Here are some of my recommendations that feature youth activism or protest. A Handful of Stars by Rafiq Shami was published in the late 1980s. It features a Syrian teenage boy from 1960s Damascus who aspires to be a journalist and spread a message of rebellion as his society falls under dictatorial control. What begins as his diary turns into a subversive underground newspaper that is courageously distributed by the main character and his friends. Another work featuring a young protagonist is Rebels by Accident by Patricia Dunn. This novel involves an Egyptian-American girl named Miriam who finds herself in the middle of the events of the Arab Spring in Tahrir Square. The book is an exciting read that engages readers in thinking more deeply about protest movements and who may become involved in them. A nonfiction graphic novel that I would include on our list is journalist Joe Sacco's book Palestine. During the first intifada in the late 1980s and early 90s, Sacco spent several months in the Palestinian territories writing long-form comics about his experiences that he later turned into this 1996 work that won the American Book Award. While it focuses on the personal experiences of many Palestinians, these characters include young people whose lives were changed by the protests and who participated in various ways. Moving just beyond the Arab world, another graphic novel worth a look is Zara's Paradise by the Persian author Amir Sultani and the Arab artist Khalil. This political webcomic set in modern Iran features a mother searching for her son, a young protester who has disappeared during the demonstrations after the fraudulent 2009 elections. Serializing the original content of the comic on a blog in real time, the authors relied on insights and suggestions from their followers on social media as they completed each chapter. Lastly, moving beyond the area usually deemed part of the Middle East, I would suggest a book that many of our listeners may teach with already, I Am Malala, the self-told story of Malala Yousafzai of Pakistan. Malala became an advocate for girls' education at the age of 11 when the Taliban began attacking and closing girls' schools in her country. The young Malala gave a speech called, How Dare the Taliban Take Away My Basic Right to Education? And despite an assassination attempt by a Taliban gunman when she was 15, she hasn't stopped speaking up since then. Malala famously won the Nobel Peace Prize two years later, the youngest person ever to do so. Her book makes for inspirational reading about the power of a passionate young activist. I hope you enjoy exploring these stories about committed young people or finding your own tales featuring activist youth in the Arab world or in the broader Middle East. At a time of rising youth activism in the U.S., they may have a special resonance for your students. Being a young person in the Arab world today isn't exactly easy. Fundamental shifts in the way people live and work are putting enormous pressure on young people 
forcing them to adapt quickly to kinds of social and economic changes that, in many cases, their parents never had to face. New jobs, new schools, new sets of social expectations, new economies for that matter, they're all coming together to create a new way of life that can be equal parts exciting and terrifying and frustrating. We hope this episode has helped you parse out some of these changes so that you can better explore them with your students. Thanks for joining us and talk more next time on What Teachers Need to Know, The Middle East. To learn more about today's episode, this podcast, and for free resource suggestions that can help you teach about Arab youth and youth activism, visit www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. <laughs>